Well, good evening again. I know you just heard from me, but I'm Jason. Um, I'm normally the youth pastor. Um, In this moment right now, it's probably not going to feel like it, okay? Um, I'm not going to throw candy at any of you guys or do any uh, big over-the-top. I'm not going to burn anything. Um, You guys really should come to youth group sometimes (laughs) because... It's pretty cool. Hey, um, so we're, we're in the middle of a short series around here um, that's, that's all about dragons. We're calling it the, the Dragons Among Us. And if you weren't here last week, or just a, a quick recap, um, to be honest with you, it's all kind of built around a children's book. There's this book, it's called No Such Thing as a Dragon. And, and the idea in this book is that this kid, Billy, Billy is upstairs one day, and suddenly there's a dragon in his room. And it's small. It's like this kitten-sized dragon. And so he runs downstairs and he's like, Mom, there's a dragon in my room. And Mom goes, there's no such thing as dragons. And she meant it. So if Mom says there's no such thing as dragons and she means it, he goes back upstairs and treats it like there's no such thing as dragons. He's ignoring this dragon in his room. And then he comes downstairs for breakfast, but the dragon comes down with him. And so the dragon is sitting at the table and he's eating up all of his pancakes. And I'm sure at this point, mom realizes this is a problem, but she's already said, there's no such thing as dragons. So instead of dealing with it, she just keeps bringing pancakes until she's out of pancakes and Billy only got one. And then the story goes on, and and just very, very quickly, this dragon that doesn't exist grows and grows to the point you can't avoid it anymore. And mom's like having to climb out the window to come back in another window to vacuum another room. And then at some point, the dragon gets so excited about seeing something out on the street that it starts to run after it, but it's so big now that it takes the house. And the house is running down the street. There's no such thing as dragons. So the idea is that there are problems in life. We all have a dragon. We all have problems in life, but they grow when they're ignored. That's the point of the book. And to be honest with you, that's a biblical truth too. And so we decided to take this children's book and turn it into a series here at church. And last week, Tim talked to us about kind of the overall point of it. And this week, I want to get a lot more specific. Now, um, to get there, I have, I mean, how many of you guys are married? Okay. How many of you guys um, want to get married? <laughs> okay. All right. How many of you guys know somebody that's married? All right, good, good. This is going to be really applicable then. Because I think we're, we're going to talk about marriage today, and I think that it's possibly the most common place to find ignored dragons is in our marriage. See, in, in our church, I know that there are a lot of marriages that are broken, that are struggling and I know this because people, people come to us looking for help. People call us and they're like, would you, would you talk to my spouse with me? Could, could you help us sort this out? And, and then I'll bump into people out in public and I'll check in on them and they're not, they're not doing okay. And people turn in blue cards asking for us to pray for their marriage. See, people are, are struggling. Like, I never thought that we'd be sleeping in separate bedrooms at this point in life. I feel like we're just, we're just roommates. Like we just 
live here together. There's no connection between us anymore. I wish he, that he would just stop whatever he's doing and see me for a minute. More than just hi and goodbye. We're always fighting. We're constantly frustrated. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. But I have to admit, even in my marriage, we're in a season right now of working on our marriage. We're in a season of, of having to put in work to make it work, right? See, Christy's been saying to me for years that she needs me to be more engaged. She needs more from me, right? She needs to feel more connected to me. Like, like, and, and she would say, like, we're going in, like, different directions sometimes. I just don't, it doesn't feel right, and I would try, I would hear this, and I would like, okay, I, I will change something for a minute, right? For a week, until my feelings got hurt. Or I would do the best I could, but I really had no idea what she's asking for. Marriage is hard. And I want you guys to hear up front, pastor in the room, my marriage is hard sometimes. So I'm hoping that today that God will talk to all of us, right? And some of you guys aren't married, and I understand, and, and the rest of us are, and I believe that God has something for everybody in the room. Because there's a lot of dragons in life are found at home. Now, because there are so many dragons in marriage, <laughs> so many things that we just sort of ignore, right? I want to get even more specific. I want to narrow it down to just one problem, one dragon in marriage. And to do that, I'm going to talk to the men today. So guys, pay attention. But ladies, I know that when you hear that, you're like, wait, this isn't man camp. Right? Like, I came here to hear something too. Like, don't tune out, ladies. Um, women, I need you to know that I am talking to the men I'm talking to the men for you, okay? So this is, trust me, this is for everybody here today. And I'm willing to get that specific because I am convinced that where there are strong, engaged, godly men, the people around them flourish. I'm convinced of that. And so today we're going to spend most of our time in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And if you have your Bibles, you can find it. It's actually harder to find than you think because you usually start in the middle, right? I don't know about you. I open my Bible and I'm like, oh gosh, it's all the way at the front. Genesis 2 is where we're going to be. But before we get there, um, I want to start with a caveat. I want to start with some nuance. And the reason I want to do that is because I actually want to skip some nuance for the sake of impact I think it's entirely possible to nuance yourself right out of a room that you should be standing in. That you can talk your way around problems so well that you don't actually ever talk about the thing. And so I just want right up front, let's get some of the nuance out of the way. And so even though we're going to be in Genesis 2, I want to show you something in Genesis 1. In 1.27, it says this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Men 
and women, male and female, are both created in the image of God. We are equal image bearers. The imago Dei, the, the image of God, is just as much displayed in the male characteristics as they are in the female characteristics. We are both valuable in exactly the same way for exactly the same reason, because we both carry the image of God. And so one thing I am not saying today is that women are less important or less valuable than men. Okay? Nuance. But I also want to make a point that Genesis 1 is full of distinctions. Like it seems like God made a point of showing us day and night, and God separated them and put them together as a pair. Earth and sky separated them. They're unique together as a pair. Water and land separated and together. They're designed to complement one another. We see that over and over in Genesis 1. And so another thing that I'm not saying is that men and women were designed to be the same. They're distinct on purpose, designed as a pair. And another thing, another piece of nuance is that I'm not saying that women can't lead. Because I know some amazing women leaders. I know amazing women leaders in my life and in this church. And I think we see it in the Bible too. We see evidence of women leading. And so I'm not saying that women can't lead. Now, with all of that nuance out of the way, let's talk about the men. Genesis chapter 2. Verse 15 goes like this. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, one thing that I think is really profound here that I want you guys to catch, all of this, this conversation is happening before they screw it up. This is still in the part of creation that God said was good, right? This is before sin, before the mess. Work came before the fall of man. You were designed to work. Like God actually had it in mind for us to be putting in effort, for us to be putting energy behind something, for us to be doing things, accomplishing things. That was part of the good design of God. But notice how he says this up there in verse 15. He said he took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. And what that means is that Adam was actually in charge of the garden. He could change it. He was responsible to determine what happened. Like, I think um, this tulip is getting a little bit too close to the rose bushes. We're going to have to transplant it. He had to put effort in and work the garden with results in mind. His job was to take it somewhere. So right off the bat, we see that Adam's role is to lead the garden somewhere, to do something with it, to work it and to care for it, to, to cultivate it, to get the most out of the garden, to, 
develop it, to sustain it, right? To work for the garden's good be another way to think about that. So God's talking to Adam and he says, Adam, I put you here for a reason. I want you to work, like do something with this. Turn it into something, but do it in a way that's best for the garden. That was Adam's responsibility. He's in charge of the garden. And then we see the tree rule. And this is the famous one, right? Like you could, whole messages have been preached just on this rule, right? God says you can have everything except for this tree. Don't eat this tree, right? The one rule. And there were only two people in this conversation. God tells Adam, don't eat from the tree. Again, Adam's responsibility, work and take care of the garden, don't eat from the tree. And then he gets to name the animals, right? Now imagine how long of a day that was. At first you're like, whoa, giraffe, right? Like, that one's awesome, the spots on the neck. And I don't know how you did that, right? And by the end of the day, he's like, cat. <laughs> like, I don't know, it looks dumb. I have a new cat and it's not my favorite thing. All right, so after he names the animals, he gets down to, uh, in verse 20, it goes like this. It says, so, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now, when I read that helper thing, the little 2022 enlightened Western world part of me, just sort of the hairs on my neck sort of stand up like, oh, that's, I, that's uncomfortable. Right, like, like, let me explain it to you. See, the word in Hebrew is ezer, and what it does not mean is assistant. The word does not mean that somebody needs to run behind him, like trying to carry all the papers that he's dropping and picking up his mess. It's not what it means. It actually means one who adds their strength. It's a strengthener. It's an accomplisher. You want to know something really interesting? This word ezer, it shows up all over in the New Testament and almost, or Old Testament. And almost always it describes God himself. God will be your helper. And I don't imagine God running around picking up the pieces for people, right? He's there to add strength and get things done. He's there to accomplish. When it says that God is our ezer, the same thing would be true then when Eve comes on the scene. Because the result of this problem that there's no suitable helper is that God says, none of these animals are going to cut it. You don't need a team of oxen. You need an azer. Eve. Now, that is a wonderful, amazing moment in history when there's this beautiful partnership, man and woman, and it lasts about that long. Because then we turn the page to Genesis chapter 3, and it goes like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will certainly die. Okay, a little side note. He didn't say anything about touching it. They could have a tree fort in there, right? Like, they could be playing catch with the mangoes or whatever was growing. Like, that part didn't matter. You will not certainly die. 
the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. Familiar, right? Where's Adam? Like, his job is to make sure nobody eats from the tree. That was, that was his job. If I remember right, God said, hey, don't eat from here. Like, right? Where is Adam in this? Is he working? Is he down by the stream picking blueberries? Right? Is he, is he hanging out with Bob the porcupine? He named the animals, you guys. I have a feeling Bob was probably one of the names. Seriously, though, like, where is Adam in this moment? The rest of the verse goes like this. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. He was there. He was standing right next to her. Adam's sin begins with being passive. The beginning of the problem for Adam is that he's passive. He could have done all kinds of things, right? Did God really say that you must not eat of this tree? And he's like, um, yeah. Wait, I was there. That's exactly what God said? Come on, Eve, let's get out of here. Right? You will certainly not die. Um, yes, you certainly will. Those are literally the words that God used. He said, you will certainly die. I remember. He could have pulled her away when he saw that she was tempted. Like, hey, why are you looking at the fruit like that? What's that drool? Right? Like, come here, come here, right? He could have drug her out. Man, he could have slapped the fruit out of her hand. Like, my mango. Right? Like, instead, he's passive. He steps back, takes a back seat. So she steps up. He creates a gap in responsibility and leadership in that moment, and she steps in to fill the gap. And I have to admit that I think I see myself all over this story. Like, if I'm honest, um, in almost every room that I'm in anymore, I'm the leader, or I'm one of the leaders. Just about everywhere that I go, I've got some responsibility at home, with my kids, with my wife, here at the church. Um, I'm a salesperson, so in the, you know, when I'm talking to somebody, my job is to lead them somewhere. But around my wife and my family, I shrink back. Like I'm, I'm happy to make her happy. I'm happy if there's no drama, right? And so I'm not nearly as assertive I'm not as decisive. I'm not initiating things. Sometimes I'm not even engaged because if I can just keep the peace, everybody's happy, right? And I'm not sure what I would have done standing there at the tree. I'm not sure what I, if, if my wife was standing there having this conversation and she's like, I really want this mango. I'd have been like, okay, we're getting the mango. Right? Like, I don't know how many times we've been at the store, and she's like, I really want this thing. And I'm like, deep breath, right? I'm doing the numbers in my head. I'm like, okay. Like, I'm pretty sure that I would just want to make her happy. 
And you might say, like, what's wrong actually with keeping the peace? Like, the way you're describing that sounds like a happy home, right? So here's the thing. Um, I don't know if you've noticed or not, Homer Simpson, but the culture has basically decided that weak men are normal, right? And we do that so that we can celebrate the women who step up. And here's the thing. I don't think we have to expect or normalize passive men to empower strength in women. But our culture has let that happen, hasn't it? Right? And I, here's the problem. I have seen the effects of women having to stand in the gap, of having to carry the burden of leadership in their homes, in their marriages, in their spiritual life. Thank you, women, for stepping in there when we step out. But I don't think that that's the way that God designed it. And so what I want to do is I want to get a lot more specific about what I mean when I say passive. What I don't mean when I say passive is I don't mean that you're not doing anything. Because to be honest with you, that's really not possible, right? Like Unless you are literally that guy who just sits there like this. Even then, your thumb's doing something, right? Like, passive doesn't mean you're not doing anything. What I mean when I say passive is I mean that you are actively avoiding something. God said to do something, and you're actively avoiding doing it. That's what I mean when I say passive. Let me give you some examples. Complaining and making excuses is passive. God said not to complain, to own the things that we've done, to take responsibility. We see that here with Adam in a few minutes, right? He starts pointing fingers. Getting lost in fantasy instead of being present with people is passive. God wants you to be engaged. And I think so often it's so easy to be caught up in fantasy. And listen, for some of us men, um, I know a lot of boys that shave, if you know what I mean? Like some boys that haven't quite grown up even though their body says that they have, right? And so it's real easy for some of us to really engage in some fantasy. We're imagining all kinds of things that may show up in video games or movies, which themselves aren't bad, but what is a problem is when we are supposed to be present with people and we're actively avoiding it. Refusing to worship God is passive. Um, somebody explained to me yesterday this interesting thing. I'll try to explain it the same way. Um, we have basically designed church around the people who have gotten most engaged over the last 50 years, women. And so men get more and more uncomfortable, it seems like, worshiping at church. And let me tell you, when your family sees you truly engage in worshiping the God that you love, it lights a fire in your home, and the exact opposite is true. When you don't, when you refuse to engage, when men won't worship, the effects are felt all around them. Silence in a moment where words are needed is passive. We all know what that's like, right? Laziness at work or in ministry or church is passive. 
leaving difficult things for other people to do. You ever went around doing something hard because you knew somebody else would? Passive. Or what about apathy and being apathetic? A lack of ambition about things that are truly important to God and people. Let me give you an example of that. Not being excited about the things that God is excited about. Like what if God was doing something amazing in our town and there was like revival breaking out and you had an opportunity to go be a part of it. And you're like, yeah, I don't like the park. I mean, if the revival came to my driveway, that'd be cool, right? Like God might be about something and you're just like, meh, right? Or not being appalled by the things that are truly wrong. Child abuse, sex trafficking, idolatry, pornography, passive. You're avoiding a responsibility. Now, passivity is a dragon that I think most men and most marriages refuse to look at. I think for most people, a passive husband in a marriage just sort of sticks back in the shadows and nobody ever talks about it and it's bothering more people than you know. I think most men actually are kind of apathetic, to be honest with you. I, I think most men are emotionally immature. Like, I've got a chart of all the emotions and the names. Do you, like, men, sometimes we're just emotionally stunted, right? Like, you just don't know what you feel. Your wife's like, what are you feeling right now? And you're like, uh, <laughs> fine. Or not fine, right? Those are my options, right? I don't know. I think most men are actually self-indulging and self-benefiting. And I think we, we hide behind excuses like happy wife, happy life. I love that one, right? Oh, as long as she's happy. Everything's good in my life. I don't want to make her not happy. And so I'm happy to step back so that there's no drama. And I think that most wives that are married to these men resent them for it. And the reason I think that is because women are the ones that reach out. Women are the ones who call and say, would you meet with me and my husband? Something's wrong. I cannot explain it. Right? They are the ones who fill out the blue cards, pray for my marriage. I think so many wives, men hear me, so many wives are craving something. They are, they're craving emotional intimacy. They're craving vision and direction in the marriage. They're, they're craving spiritual leadership. But here's the problem. Men will often choose what's easy over what's right. And the reason I'm sure that most men deal with this and most women are frustrated by it is because this is a dragon that I think has been passed down and ignored since Adam. I think it's everywhere. I looked in the Bible, because I, I knew I was doing a, a talk on marriage, and man, I wanted a fluffy one, right? Like, I wanted like, let's find a good example of marriage in the Bible. I dare you, right? Like, like we look up to like Abraham's faith, right? And David's heart. Like there are things about these guys, but you start looking at husbands and Noah traumatized his boys by being naked and drunk at the first moment he could grow a vineyard. 
right? Abraham let Sarah take the lead with Hagar, and look at the mess that created. We talked about that last week. Eli, the priest, won't stop his evil sons from ruining the priesthood and defaming the name of God. David won't discipline his son for raping his sister. Look at the fallout and the mess that that created in their home. Solomon isn't satisfied with the wife of his youth, even though he's the one who wrote that in Proverbs. And he goes and he gets 999 other wives. What a mess. I think this dragon of passive men that avoid doing what God's calling them to do has been passed down and passed down, and I think it's everywhere. And here's the problem. Passivity is selfish. It doesn't seem that way, right? It seems like that happy wife, happy life, like I don't want any drama, whatever makes you guys happy is cool. But passivity is all about me because I get to avoid doing something hard. I get to avoid doing something that God is calling me to do. I'll just shrink back. Well, that's about me. That is selfish. We contrast that to the calling that husbands have. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul wrote to husbands, and it goes like this. Verse 25 of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. If our love for our wives, men, is supposed to look like Christ's love for the church, then the first thing that I see here is that it's supposed to be a self sacrificing love, not a selfish passivity. I can't be both selfish and self-sacrificing at the same time. And you see, Jesus was anything but passive. What hard thing did Jesus avoid doing? Right? What, what, was, what was one moment when, it, when Jesus was selfish, where it was all about him? And so um, the idea here is that you'd be willing to die for your wife. And here's what's hard. I think that most of us guys, if there was a busk about to hit our wife, we would jump out in front of it, we'd throw her out of the way, we'd be the hero, and we would die. And it is so much harder to die to yourself every single day for your wife. It's easy to just say, I would take a bullet for her. And it's a whole lot harder to die to yourself. Let me show you what I mean. Dying for your wife might mean letting your need to be comfortable die so that you could serve her. Like, speak up when it's right, even when it's uncomfortable. Um, there was this time where Christy and I were sitting with another leader at another organization, um, and he was kind of picking on my wife. He was kind of hurting her with his words, right? And, and he couched it in this kindness, right? So it was really like abusive. It was weird and manipulative. And what my wife needed in that moment was for me to speak up was for me to do that thing that, that protected her in that moment. And instead, I sat there. And I let it happen. 
And then I got home that night, and I'm like, man, that guy was a jerk, right? Tears in her eyes. She's like, I don't even think you understand what happened. What she needed was for me to speak up, but I was uncomfortable. Maybe it means working harder so that she doesn't have to pick up the slack. Maybe it means being present emotionally, even when you're tired. Even at the end of the day, when you feel like you have earned the right to kind of shut down, right? You've earned that beer. You've earned that couch. You've earned that moment. And she really needs you to engage. And maybe you need to die to your need for comfort in that moment and engage. Self-sacrificing love. That's something I see. Now, I also see here that it says that Christ makes the church holy. If we're going to love like Christ, then one of our goals in our marriage is spiritual leadership, men. One of the things that we need to be able to do is we need to be able to lead our wives in the faith. And here's the problem. I think that most of us are running to play catch up. I think most of the time, the women have already figured it out and they're already running and we're just happy to be like in the wagon that they're toting, like along for the ride. Like, oh, this Jesus stuff's kind of cool. <laughs> and yet, if we're gonna love like Jesus loved the church, part of our goal is for her spiritual growth, her holiness. That's my responsibility? Let's keep going. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church. Feed and care for. It is our role to provide for our wives. That does not mean, I am not saying that you have to be the breadwinner. Some of you ladies have amazing jobs. And I am not saying that like, you should stop being the administrator at a hospital so that he can go work at Circle K and be the breadwinner. That's not what I mean, okay? Now, but men, you were designed to work before there was ever sin in the world. And so you ought to at least be engaged in working for your wife. But I don't think... That's where provision stops. I think provision, providing, goes way beyond money. What does she need? Providing is about meeting needs. What does she need? See, sometimes Christy needs me to make her buy herself something. Because I know she needs it, but she feels guilty about spending the money. And sometimes she needs me to stop her from buying something <laughs> because even though she feels like she needs it, we can't do that, right? Like iron sharpening iron. This may be the closest, this had better be the closest Christian relationship in your life. You guys should be sharpening each other. And the problem is I think most of the time the woman is like this sharp tool and the guy is like this dumb hammer in the corner. What does your wife need? Discern what she needs and help by providing. See, passive husbands avoid doing the things that their wife needs them to do. Being the spiritual leader of the home. 
I love this quote from Matt Chandler. The man will, will set the spiritual climate of the home. He just will. Like, as hard as the wife tries, as hard as a mom tries to set the spiritual climate of the home, there is something unique that happens with dad. And so when dad's not involved, it's like trying to pull a rowboat out of the lake, right? Instead of just rowing across the waves, suddenly you're dragging it across the rocks. It just is harder. The man will set the spiritual climate of the home, which means if you're weak, the climate's weak. And listen, pastor in the room, I have failed at this over and over and over in my marriage and in my home. And listen, here's, here's the reason I think it happens in my life, because my wife is really sensitive to it. She's the one who feels the need. She's the one who will come in and be like, we need to, to study the Bible with the boys. We need to be doing a couple's devotion. We, we really need this in our home. And my thought is like, well, we're both strong Christians. She's the one that's around the kids all the time. She's the one who's got this drive. She can do it. And I stepped back. And listen, sometimes she did step forward. But more often, there was very little spiritual activity as a group in our home. I'd be studying and growing. She'd be studying and growing. Fingers crossed our kids are not totally off the rails. But we're supposed to develop and learn and teach and be the iron that sharpens the other person's iron and lead. Now listen, the way that you lead doesn't have to look the way that she leads. And I need everybody to hear me on that one, men and women. If he's going to step into the leadership gap, it doesn't have to look like it has always looked in the home for it to work. Now, another thing that passive husbands avoid that most women need is initiating emotional intimacy. And I chose those words carefully. I don't just mean being emotional, right? Get out your little chart and like, oh, I'm feeling sad. Right? Like, that's not what I mean. I mean initiating emotional intimacy. Not just responding to it. And I fail at this one too. Can I admit, like, this has been a hard week for me to prep for this message because every I'm like, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that. Jesus, are you sure this? Initiating emotional intimacy is something that she needs, and so avoiding it is passive. Most men don't even know what this means, right? I, I, didn't, I didn't know. Like somebody would be like, you should be chasing after your wife's heart. And I'm like, is it running? Why is it running? Where'd her heart go? Right? Like I'm getting my hunting gear. Like I don't know what that means, right? Like... It means being proactive, right? And actually engaging with how she feels. Noticing how you feel and involving that in the conversation. Connecting on a deeper level. Or what about holding the mantle of vision and direction in the home? And I don't mean bullying, right? I know a lot of guys are like, oh, I like this, that, that list. I'm not doing that. I'm just going to go home and leader guy, 
right? Just run in and just like wreck stuff. It's not what I mean. I don't mean go home and be a bully. I don't mean like I'm gonna go home and get my way, but I'm gonna take input. But listen, vision and direction are a burden that women aren't supposed to have to carry. So thank you women that have stepped in to carry that burden. Thank you single moms, right? Thank you women with passive husbands. Thank you that you guys have done that. But that is a burden that us men are supposed to carry. We're supposed to be able to discern when to say yes and when to say no. Right? And we're supposed to do all of these things, Ephesians 5 says, in a self-sacrificing, hard-working, Christ-like way. That's our calling, men. Now, knowing that, um, I want to take a a moment and just think back to Genesis again. Think about what happened after the part of the story that we read. Adam eats the fruit, right? They know they're naked. God comes in. He's like, where are you? They're hiding. And then it's trouble time, right? Like it's that moment when like dad's home, right? Or whatever. Like it's that moment where they're scared because we're about to get in trouble. And so finally the judgment falls. And what happens is God says to Adam, I meant for you to work. I meant for you to do things and get results in life. And because you couldn't obey me in this one thing, from now on, work is going to be hard. From now on, the results aren't going to come easy anymore. The effort that you put in is not going to give you the return that you want. Life is hard. And from that moment on, all throughout history, life has been hard. It's exhausting, right? Life's exhausting and it's, and it's difficult for us. And so here's what happens. We look for places where we can make it easy. And that's why, men, we choose what's easy over what's right. Life is already hard enough. Where can I retreat to? The result of the fall is that it's always gonna be hard now. That part's not going away which means that our tendency to look for places to retreat to is never going away either. Our tendency to want to be passive, to want to avoid the things that God wants for us to do, that tendency is never going away, which means fighting against passivity will likely be a lifelong fight, gentlemen. And God is calling us to the fight. It's never going to be easy. And you're like, well, that's not very encouraging, Jason. <laughs> like, I usually come to church like to be encouraged. What can I do about it? Like, life's going to always be hard. I'm always going to have this problem. What can I do? While I was in Ephesians 5, I found another verse. So I had never really noticed it before. And man, is it encouraging. This helps me understand sanctification better than any other passage in the Bible. Sanctification is when we're growing to be into the person that God wants us to be, a reflection of Jesus Christ. And unlike salvation, salvation is entirely a work of God in your life. Sanctification is a partnership between you and God. Check this out, verse 13 of Ephesians 5. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. 
Everything that's exposed, everything that is drug out of the darkness can finally be seen. But the result is that the thing that is illuminated can actually become a light. The things that we once hid in the darkness, the things that we ignored, the dragons that grew too big in our home, the dragon that kept me from telling my wife I love her, from saying, no, I don't think we need separate bedrooms, we need to work on something. When those things get drug into the light, the thing that we were once ashamed of could very well become one of the biggest, most impactful things in your life for the gospel, could become a light. See, our sin will always be there until we stop pretending like it isn't. Our sin will always be there until we stop pretending like it isn't, which is interesting. Um, we started with this, this story, right? The dragon story. I want to read you the last couple pages. This giant, house-sized, destructive dragon. They had just, Billy had just said, do you see the dragon? And they patted it on the head. The dragon wagged its tail happily. Then even faster than it had grown, the dragon started getting smaller. Soon, it was kitten-sized again. I don't mind dragons this size, said mother. Why did it have to grow so big? I'm not sure, Billy. I think it just wanted to be noticed. Our sin will always be there until we stop pretending like it isn't. And it's going to grow, and it's going to grow. And talk about a dragon that will run away with your house. Problems in marriage that will wreck your life. Our sins grow as long as we pretend like they're not a problem. Now, verse 13 that we just read, I'm going to read it again, but I'm going to read it with verse 14. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You know, yesterday I was, um, I was studying, I was kind of in that place where my brain was numb. You ever get there? Right? Like you're just too far into work, and like things are just shutting down. So I went out and I laid on my trampoline. Actually, it was Friday. It matters because it was sunny. <laughs> I went out there. I laid on my trampoline that my kids haven't used in like six years in the yard. And I'm looking up, and I could feel the sun. Have you ever been where you can feel the sun on a cold day? And it just feels so good. And I noticed it the moment that it went behind a cloud because instantly the heat went away. And then it came back and I was like, oh my gosh. This idea that Christ will shine on you. That the, the energy of Christ, the Holy Spirit's power will actually be felt in you, will empower you to walk toward the thing that he is calling you to do after you have drug it out of the dark, after it's exposed to the light. And the only thing between those two statements here is that you have to get up. You have to start walking. It says, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and then Christ will shine on you. Participate. So your sanctification, here's how I like to talk about sanctification. Your sanctification is your will put together with God's power to accomplish his will in your life. 
He's the one who's going to do the work. But you can stop it. You can screw it up. But as soon as you're walking in that direction, he's like giving you the power. He's shining on you. And so we're going to always struggle with this, men. But we don't have to struggle alone. The gospel says that the things that we struggle with, Jesus will come and help with. And you can walk toward this high calling of not being passive. Because of this, I'm going to put this up on the screen. Your wife needs a strong, engaged, godly man. And so what are you going to do with this? Here are some ideas. I want you to figure out how you're passive. I talked about a lot of things today. I know the ways that I'm passive. How are you passive? What are the things that you're avoiding doing that you know you should? Specifically at home. And then another thing I want you to do, I want you to find out what your wife needs, which means you're going to have to ask, which means you're going to have to talk to her about this stuff. It means you're going to have to actually say, hey, what questions am I not asking? Is there a part of you that I'm not touching? Is there something in you that I could help with? What do you need? How could I grow into that? And then invite someone else to help you. Look for a man that does this well and ask, how do I do this? Invite a friend to hold you accountable to these things. All right, now women, you pretty much made it to the end. Thank you for being patient with us as we stumble through these things. Um, I have some things that you could do too. You could encourage your man when you see him stepping into this. And moms, when you see boys stepping into this, single ladies, when you see your date stepping into this, you could encourage the men to not be passive. Thank you. I'm so glad you asked me that question. I'm so glad you noticed, right? I see you trying, honey, right? But don't punish. You don't get to go home and elbow your husband and be like, did you hear him? Right? Gentle reminders and encouragement is iron sharpening iron, but poking and insulting and complaining when he doesn't do it right or do it often, or that's going to actually drive him in the opposite direction because it causes more shame, more retreat, more darkness. And if what you want is for him to step forward, you can't punish. You have more power than you know, so use it for his good. And men, stop being passive. Let me pray over you. Heavenly Father, thank you for these moments. Thank you for speaking to us. And man, are we sorry for the ways that we have screwed this up. Um, I pray for your grace over each and every man here that there wouldn't be shame for the things that we feel guilty about because you've delivered us from shame and condemnation. So God, I pray for your spirit to enable and empower the men in this room to live into their role at home and in our cities and in our churches, in our world. Because I'm convinced, God, that where godly, strong men are, the people around them flourish. Would you help us help the people around us flourish? In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>